Yeah, I think going to your first unit, that's okay. huge. You know, you've been through all this training, you've been around other lieutenants and captains and above, and and, and now you're gonna go take care of the take a, take a platoon and you're gonna have you know real Marines. How many right? people in a platoon? <laughs> uh, uh, it's changed a little bit now, but at that time, 42. Thank you for taking the time to be here this morning. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a pleasure riding with you over a five-day trip in Hokkaido. Right? Yeah, that that's fantastic. Really and same here. My, my first group uh, ride. Yeah. I've been a Lone Ranger up until this point. Right. So. And you're 56 years old, right? 56. Right. And you told me this is the first time you've you've been riding only for a year. I got my license in May of uh, 21. Started riding in February. Went to the went to a Japanese mo uh, motorcycle school. Right. And uh, right by my home. Yeah, right Hinomaru. Hinomaru. Yeah. That was fantastic and yeah. great training. Fantastic training yeah. that you would. And it was about. Once the dust settled, about twenty-five hundred dollars, which is about what you pay for, you know, good training in the United States. Very good, good instructors. Graduated in May, so I'd only been riding for yeah. But I will let me say this to everyone. I just want to suggest this to everybody. I told Chris when he first started riding that if I knew him before he went to get his bike, because he was obviously having his midlife crisis, <laughs> not to get a motorcycle. It is very, very difficult, and it's really a. It's it's a, it's an accident waiting to be have to happen, and that's someone who's been riding since I was like ten years old. Chris did such a good job, but I I give the credit, not knowing his background, but I'd say give the credit mostly to his military time. Interesting, you say that. That's yeah. what did it. He'd been he's been trained by the most powerful, strongest company in the planet. They spend billions of dollars to learn how human beings work. So within six to eight weeks. They get a human being to be willing to give their life for a medal they'll never see. That's why you're able to do what you did. Well, that's very interesting because yeah, you're right. We, uh, your military career tends to be a succession of them throwing things at you, uh, technical mixed with the physical, mixed with you know the, some the, of the, stuff the cognitive. You. Yeah, and you've got to assimilate it and and, and master it to a certain level, mm -hmm. a certain amount of time, and and which is also you know one of the impetus for me. Um, getting a motorcycle license. So I was sitting around during COVID, uh, you know, at home, everyone's on lockdown, and I'm, uh, you know, going through looking at various, you know, gun videos. I've, I collect guns and shoot guns back in the United States and uh, buying some ammo. And, and my wife said, you need a hobby. And I said, well, I have a hobby. She said, no, that's not, this is Japan. Right. You need a hobby here. And I, and I said, well, I wanted to ride a motorcycle. My, my roommate from college, I uh, went to VMI, he's a Marine also. He's been riding since he was like nine years old. And so uh, he, had, he had been bugging me for years to get a motorcycle license. So that was- Is he here? He's, he's in America. Okay. We actually retired on the exact same day. And, mm -hmm. and then, uh, so my wife said, do it, just go find a school and, and you know. Because she said, and she was right, she said, you need something that's technical, uh, that involves gear and equipment risk. that you have. Yeah, there's a certain amount of risk, you know. <laughs> there's I, a whole I, lot of risk. I mean, one of the things I said <laughs> when I retired was that I'm not going to miss, you know, going into places where people are trying to kill me all the time. <laughs> and however, you do miss um, uh, a certain amount of risk that, that just comes with, you know, daily 
yeah. being in the military That's because true. it's exciting. It's controlled risk. That's uh, true. It's, 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 you get an adrenaline rush. There's yeah. no doubt about it. It's risk versus gamble. You know, That's gamble are saying. things you can't recover from That's if you make a mistake, and risks are mm -hmm. are calc more calculated. And when our trip was really successful, no one hit the road. No one got you know road rash. We right. Yeah. And um, no, no close calls. Nothing. You let us in a downpour. Also and I a said, first. Look at this guy. Also a first. I said, I mean, it was raining hard. It wasn't just a little rain. We got soaked. Yes. And that was really something. I said, Challenge. Go for it. Look at him go. Because I'm, you know, I'm always concerned about road conditions. Right. And, and uh, <laughs> hear all the horror stories and watch some of these videos on YouTube about you know accidents and what causes them. A lot of it's road conditions. You know, mm -hmm. guys not paying attention. Mm -hmm. And uh, but you can't see the road, you know, right in front of you. We went through so, a cloud. We went through yeah. a bunch of clouds. Right. We couldn't see each other. Couldn't see anything. You in the front. Well, you in the you in the front. Yeah, I was. You in the led front. us through the that whole too. day. It was the whole day. You you had on your yeah. flashes, and I had on my flashes, and we had Peter in the center. Right. Because he had no flashes, and we had we rode that way through the clouds. And at a certain points, so I tried to put my visor down. <laughs> you can't see, and then you open it, you're getting pelted in the face. <clears throat> Glasses on, and at some point, I said, well. The pain of getting pelted in the face is better than the complete, hey, almost the, blacked out conditions. Hitting the wall or something, right? Yeah. Wow, we made it. We Tell made me, it. Chris, where were you born? I was born in Charleston, West Virginia, but we very. My parents both worked for American Airlines at the time, and uh, 1966, and. So we very quickly moved from there. So I don't remember that. I I tell people I'm from Texas because. From the time I was a baby, I grew up there. So okay. even you my both parents worked for American Airlines. So yes. your father was a pilot, or were they both? No, he uh, came out of World War II, okay. uh, got a college degree on the GI Bill, went to work for American in customer service. Okay, and uh, met my mother there, and um, yeah, and worked until the day he died for American Airlines. So is that right? So they moved to Dallas uh, in 1966, and. Um, that's what I remember growing up is Texas. Is your mother doing okay now? Is she all right? She's okay. Yeah, she's eighty-four and mm -hmm. uh, lives my step with my stepfather. And um, uh, my father, my biological father, passed away in nineteen eighty-seven. How old were you? And then I was. I, let's see. I was twenty-one, twenty-two, okay. twenty-one. I guess so you were already out the house. You're right. The house yeah. Already. I'm sorry. Nineteen eighty-five. Okay. So I was uh, my first year at VMI, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and if you know anything about VMI, there's a rat line. It's your sort of basic training, indoctrination. So we had just come out of the rat line. This is for the Marines. Uh, yeah, well, this is for college. Uh, for college, VMI. Yeah, Virginia Military Institute. So oh, okay. Yeah, it's a state military academy, if okay. you will, and um, I was on a Marine Corps scholarship. So, right. But I was there, and, and he passed away there. So, uh, But my parents live in, my, my stepfather and my mom live in Florida. Right. I'm a Florida resident. Have you said so. hello to your mom yet? Hi, Mom. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have siblings? I don't. I was, uh, I'm was i an only child. You told me that. I yeah, just wanted yeah. people to hear that. And your wife is, too. And my wife is, too, which gets interesting sometimes. And that's the yeah. thing. I remember the one thing that you said to me is, I said, do you ever have any conflicts? And you said, yes, sometimes. And we both look at each other and say, you're acting like an only child. Yeah. You know, you know exactly when it's happening. So, <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that interesting? So tell me this. So growing up in Texas, would you say in elementary school, were you more academic or were you more physical? Were you more sports-minded? I think I was more academic. I had dabbled in sports here and there. Uh, I remember, but nothing really taught elementary, like what? Well, I played some football in junior high. What? It was okay. Didn't really like it that much. Uh, I got I gravitated, uh, you know, in high school. Uh, later on in junior high and high school, gravitated to, to Boy Scouts, and then uh, gravitated towards uh, military youth organizations. So there's an organization called Civil Air Patrol, which is not the the official auxiliary of the U.S. Air Force, and 
Uh, again, if you know anything about Civil Air Patrol. It isn't. It is, yeah. It's, it it's, is. It's sponsored by the Air Force. Okay. They have a cadet program. They, they do search and rescue. Uh, but the cadet program is, you know, they have uniforms. Your uniforms look like, uh, my knowledge may be dated. I haven't been around Civil Air Patrol in a while. But, you know, we had U.S. Air Force uniforms. You change the buttons, but otherwise. And so I, I like that. You learn to drill and you learn military things and you're around military things. And and then uh, I was living in Ohio at the time. And uh, another... Wait, wait, wait. Why were you in Ohio? Yeah, so, well, so, so my parents my, my parents were divorced when I was about three in Texas. My mom remarried. We went to New Mexico. So you only... Okay, go on. Yeah, New Me- he was an aerospace engineer for Rockwell, which mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. now part of the company that I, I uh, work for. But um, from there to Oklahoma, he passed away. We moved up to Ohio to be near my aunt okay. and, uh, and my, uh, my uncle. And so... Your mother's been married three times. Uh, yes. She's yeah. on her third now. Right. Okay. So were you close with your stepfather? Uh, not so much. Okay. He was a good guy, but uh, not so much. <laughs> he was an okay guy. He was. Right. Uh, didn't. He wasn't used to. Didn't know what to do with kids and gotcha. didn't. He didn't have. Any, he didn't have any. No, no, no. He was okay. a bachelor until he was forty, <laughs> okay. and so, you know, it's kind of yeah. tough to make a transition. Yeah. Uh, so but taught me a lot. Taught me things about auto mechanics that I didn't know. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I remember, you know, I could. When I was in sixth grade, I could change the oil on a car. I could change spark plugs, set the spark plugs. I could do when cars used to have points. I could change right. points on cars. Yes. And I knew what catalytic converters were, and I knew I could. I, so I, I, I'm very fond of if I have a problem with a vehicle, if it's under warranty, I don't touch it. But if it's not under warranty, I'm pretty comfortable with digging in and. Right. I mean, you could you could practically build your own space shuttle with YouTube nowadays. So isn't that know, the truth? Yeah, isn't that the truth? So, so he taught me a lot. Did you stay inside a lot? I mean, did you read a lot when you were a kid? Yeah, not necessarily. I read quite a bit. Yeah, okay. quite a bit. Um, I did well in school. What um, kind of books did you like to read? I like to read. Uh, I really again gravitated towards adventure stories and military stories. And my father had fought World War II, and my uncle, his brother, only two boys, only two children. And so I would go see him in the summertime, and I grew up with these, you know, they would, sometimes my uncle would come, and because his wife had passed away, and there'd be the three of us, and the entire period of the summer I was there would be constant, you know, World War II stories, and sometimes I would, you know, goad them on, but, but a lot of, it was just such a part of their lives, mm-hmm. they couldn't help but talk about it, even, you know, this would be the 80s. What theater was he in? Uh, they were both in the Pacific. Pacific, okay. Yeah, my dad was with the uh, 24th Marine Air, Gr- Air Wing, Air Group. Yeah, Air Group. That's why you picked Marines. Yeah, yeah, and he and then my uncle was with the First Marine Division. He was a rifleman. Okay, so you couldn't and, do anything uh, else. I couldn't do anything else, and so uh, they talked about, you know, their and they were in, both in, in fairly close combat. My uncle and the First Marine Division was Peleliu, Okinawa. If you've seen the the Pacific, the, the yes, series, yes, yes. Um, uh, I mean, my uncle was was that, those were the experiences that that, that he, that he about. had, you know, yeah. and so. Were they Very both brutal. enlisted, or were they? They're both enlisted. enlisted okay. Uh, they were getting set to for the invasion of Japan. Right. And uh, I remember they would tell me the Marine Corps sent them back to a, a an island mm-hmm. to to see each other because that was going to be it. I mean, they were you know they were expecting everyone was expecting to be killed. Right. right. And so uh, uh, when they didn't get killed, when it didn't happen, and the war was over with, they were. Of course, quite uh, quite uh, happy about that. So. I'm sure they were. Yeah, and then my uncle stayed in the Marine Corps for another twenty years. He made a career. He made a career. But your father got out after his. He got years. out and, and okay. went on the GI Bill. Went to college. Went to work for American. Mm-hmm. I have a letter actually from my uncle, 
on Marine Corps stationery typed um, from 1946. He's in Japan during the occupation, and it's to my grandparents, and he's talking about, you know, buy the house, we're sending you, my father's name was Ted, we're Ted and I are sending you the money we've saved, do all this, I'm getting out, I'm going to get a job and all this. And, and but this is from your uncle. From my uncle. And it turns out he didn't get out. He didn't he get out. He stays right. in, fights in the Korean War, goes to, goes to China with the 1st Marine Regiment to fight the communist Chinese as we're trying to repatriate, repatriate the Japanese and turn the infrastructure over to, to the, the, the nationalist government, the rightful government, with the communists pressing in. So fighting the Chinese in 1946. And then uh, goes to Korea, fights the Korean War, chosen reservoir, all that stuff. Uh, lingering health problems his entire life from that. And then uh, I remember him saying, I never understood this as a kid, but he said in the uh, 60s, they said, okay, you're going to go to Vietnam. And he said, uh, no, I'm not. <laughs> I'm going to retire. And, and, he's, and I saw, he said, look, you know, he had just been in so many firefights and, and his body was so messed up that, mm. you know. So tell me, okay, so out of high school, in high school, you'd pick no sports at all. Uh, no, I did. Like I said I played I, junior high. I played a little. Uh, uh, I played baseball in, in grade school, mm -hmm. and then a little football. And then, but then I got involved in the Civil Air Patrol, and then in this thing called Young Marines, which was sponsored by the Marine Corps League at the time. Um, which I tell people is the Marine Corps League is just is really a collection of guys that get out of the Marine Corps and they get together once a week or once a month or whatever and drink and uh, and tell stories. Okay. But they had a perfect group of guys to sponsor a, a youth organization, right? Okay. And so uh, we love these guys. Every one of my instructors there were, uh, we had a couple of active duty guys in the reserve, well, I mean reserve guys that were younger, but they were all combat vets, all Vietnam vets, and just, uh, you know, bigger than life, according to yeah, us, in sense. our eyes, yeah. and, and full of stories. And, uh, uh, and so that really solidified my interest. And I applied for a Marine Corps scholarship and got it, and then that was when you were eighteen. Yeah, was it when I was eighteen? Eighteen, okay. and I enlisted at the same time. And I said, "Well, I'm going one way or the other." I mean, oh, you you could do that. Yeah, you could do you it. Know, so I enlisted in the delayed entry program, right? And then I simultaneously applied for a Marine Corps scholarship and uh, got the scholarship. And what they do is they discharge you from the enlisted right. side, and then uh, went to VMI, Virginia Military Institute. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, how long four was years. that? Four years. Four years. I was a mechanical okay. engineering and you major. Out what? Lieutenant? I came out second lieutenant. Second yeah. lieutenant, okay. You graduate from VMI, you go back to your room, you take your your cadet uniform off, you put your, you know, newly minted Marine Corps uniform on, you go down for commissioning and you're off Mom and dad were there? Yeah, mom and dad were there. Yeah, my mom <laughs> pinned on one of my bars. My uh, then girlfriend, now wife, pinned on the other one, so. Is that right? Yeah, so you, yeah. you knew her then? I knew her then. I'm not wearing it today, unfortunately. I should have worn it, but I... My VMI ring, you have a you have a, a, a ceremony and a big dance. You it, it spans the whole weekend, the ceremony and the functions. And she was my date for that you know weekend. So did you you knew you were going to marry her? Uh, I I probably figured it out pretty soon. You know, she pretty quick. The, yeah, yeah. As we went along, actually. Okay. So I was a second lieutenant. She was working in uh, the D.C. area for. Uh, um, I think Nav Air. She mm -hmm. was a, a budget analyst for for Naval Air, mm -hmm. and I was I had received my duty station uh, out of the basic school it, to, to go to Hawaii, and so mm -hmm. we got married right before we went to Hawaii. So, mm -hmm. so tell me some of the highlights when you get so you get into the service, you get yeah. your commission. What are some of the highlights that just stand out? The first things you start thinking about from being in the Marines. Let's see if you were limited to a few things you could say. Yeah, I think going to your first unit. 
That's okay. huge. You know, you've been through all this training. You've been around other lieutenants and captains and above, and 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 now you're going to go take care of the take a, take a platoon, and you're going to have you know real Marines. How many right? people in <laughs> a platoon? Uh, uh, it's changed a little bit now, but at that time, 42. 42. And so uh, it's never completely fleshed out to TO, but about 30 Marines is what I okay, inherited, okay. you know. And, and, you know, but these are real Marines. You know, you're, you're, it's not school anymore, right? So uh, that was well, these a huge... Kids, these people are, are different ranks. Yeah, enlisted. Oh, so it's not just basic. No, we're ranging from privates all the way, all up, way, to, all the way up to... Your platoon sergeant, platoon sergeant. is, uh, is a, uh, a staff sergeant, right? So... Yeah, so you're gonna go. You're gonna go out there now, and with people that have more experience than you. Yeah, and and this is the real deal. So, went to Hawaii okay. uh, at that time, First Marine um, Brigade, which is no longer. Uh, if you know anything about Marine Corps Air Ground Task Force stuff, that there's a brigade. We don't we don't have an established brigade there anymore, but we still have you know obviously a massive organization. Right. And uh, and then very quickly after getting there, went to uh, about six months. No less, yeah, about six months of, of training, of exercise. Went to uh, Okinawa, and while we were in the air, Saddam Hussein invades uh, Kuwait. And so we hit the ground, and in January then of 91. You're still a second lieutenant. So second lieutenant, I think I pinned on first lieutenant somewhere in there. Okay. And then we go to uh, uh, Saudi Arabia for Desert Storm. So that was a big one. You were part of Desert Storm. Yeah, part of Desert Storm. So you were going go. across, I mean, on CNN, we're watching this. Oh, yeah. Weren't you guys there before we saw that? A lot of guys went right, That's so right gosh. when he invaded, there were a lot of people we sent there. That's and so they gosh. sort of... The Marines are first in, last yeah, out. They lingered in the desert. I think technically, for for those that are, that'll that that'll comment on this, the 101st was sent in, uh, 101st Airborne Division, right. which is an air mobile uh, okay. division, was sent in first uh, because they could get there the quickest uh, via, via aviation. But they needed... You know, when the Marine Corps arrives, we, we, tend, we bring a lot of logistics. We tend to bring staying power. Mm-hmm. Nothing against my Army brethren, but the Marine Corps travels with its own stuff. When it gets there, it can stay there and, and, and fight that way. So Marine Corps comes. These guys sit in the desert for six months, which I didn't envy. We don't get there till January of the next year, so we actually only had to sit there for, you know, uh, a couple of months, I think. Right. And, and, it already uh, lasted six months. Yeah. Didn't it? <laughs> well, it, we there was kind of the you know the the, the sits Krieg, if you will, that lasted until January, uh, late January. We start the the uh, the, the aerial campaign, okay. take out their targets. Mm-hmm. Uh, we get there a week or two before that, uh, or a few days before that actually, and uh, then we move into forward positions, and we kind of sit there while the and every night B fifty twos go overhead. A couple hours later, you're either Practicing, you're on, on actual patrols, practicing something or asleep, and you hear the B-52s just rumbling in the distance. So know? what was it like for you? So you're there, you have all, this is your first Yeah, assignment. you're, you're, you're so there. what was it like for you? Well, I, I mean, listening to those B-52s was comforting. You know, you're thinking, hey, they're, they're okay, doing they're some doing dirty work. Right, yeah. right. The more of that I hear, the less, you know. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the artillery, we, we, the Marine Corps and the Army, I assume, but we're doing a lot of artillery raids, so the... Artillery battalions would come and, and batteries sometimes would come through our position, stay there until the sun went down, then go. And it wasn't far; we were we were pretty close to the to the to the to the front. They would go up and do you know shoot at some targets and pull back very quickly. And so that was always fun to listen to. And then uh, and then it came time to go, you know, and we slowly moved up into a series of positions. Uh, uh, where there were trench lines and huge berms, and there had been a firefight there. Uh, a couple weeks beforehand with the Iraqis. people above you too. 
Yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm, a, I'm in a platoon as part of a company. Companies, okay, right. four platoons right. plus a headquarters element, and then that company there are three other rifle companies plus a weapons company part of Who's a battalion. Who's over that? Who's over that? A major. And then so a company commander's a captain. Okay. And then the battalion commander would be a lieutenant colonel. Lieutenant colonel with a major XO right. and a major operations officer, and uh, yeah, and so. Your <laughs> golf the, company, second battalion, third marines. So there's four. There's four second lieutenants or first lieutenants. Yeah. By this time, everybody's four. a first lieutenant. Right. Uh, okay. Actually, five. This is the XO, and then you've got one, two, three rifle platoons or weapons right. platoons. There's five, so five. lieutenants. Right. Yeah. So you're one of them. So these are our. Yeah. That's your little. That's it's your sort group. of group. Yeah. Your group. You get together. Yeah. And then, wow. of course, you know all the lieutenants in the of battalion. You have to, and yeah. we became close uh, over the time, especially sitting in Okinawa, waiting: Are we going? Are we going? Are we going? We finally went, so um, you know you know all these guys. You guys like, were sitting in Okinawa. Yeah, waiting for the six months because it, we were in the air when Saddam Hussein invaded. Then we land, and then the Marine Corps got a you know. Then we get the Marine Corps, the U.S. military writ large, gets some troops there, and then uh, but then the U.S. military has to figure out okay, what are we going to do? We now we have to start organizing ourselves and moving in a more deliberate fashion units forward. And I think and, and somebody that knows this history a little better than I will will probably correct us, but. I believe there were like two infantry battalions that didn't go to Desert Storm. And it was, those guys were just, I knew some of those guys, they were just gnashing their teeth. You know, everyone wanted to go. Yeah, you're prepared to. Yeah, this is it. I mean, right. this is, there was Grenada. We've been trained for it. We've right. Just, yeah, for, yeah, we've been training for this. This right. is what we're doing, right? <laughs> right. So, That's what we're supposed to do. It's, it's scary. But, but you still want to get a chance to do it. Right. That's what you came in for. We were confident when you're 20-something, you know. Yeah, no, I know why, you know, insurance rates are high. For drivers insurance for less for twenty five year olds and because yeah. and they drastically go down when you turn thirty five yeah. or so your risk know, tolerance is huge. Well, see, we wouldn't yeah. have a military if people were drafted right. when they were in their forties. Right, right. Because <laughs> no everyone would stand around going, "Hey, should no, we really no, be no. doing that? No, no. <laughs> see, are we really going to do that? No. This isn't smart. Like we should right. be killed doing this." Right, right, right. right. <laughs> so okay, so you you did that. That was one thing. That's yeah, one that of was that was a big. Right. And then the next second. time I had to do that, uh, when I was a captain, company commander, I was a Helleborn company commander, we wanted to do non-combatant evacuation operations in, in um, several places, Sierra Leone, uh, the Congo, um, and, uh, you know, it was, it, they, and I've not, you know, so these kind of stories are always a, a, little, a little difficult, but, uh, you know, my combat or my experiences were different than it wasn't trench lines of World War One, it wasn't the jungles of Vietnam. It is what we you know, my generation had. Exactly, exactly. Um, having said that, it's what you have, right? And, and, and you deal with it. And but the more you do that sort of thing, it does get a little easier. It does it's like anything else. It's like exercise or uh, any kind of cognitive skill, the more you do it and the more you do it under stress, the better you get at it. So when you have to do that again, you tend to be a little more I've seen this before. I know what to do. Right, right, yeah, right. and we had great leaders in Desert Storm, and we and we, you know, we. Uh, I think we came through with flying colors. Yeah, I think we do because I think yeah. the casualty rate was what you could count on. Extremely low. Our right, tactics were good. Our weapons were right, good. Yeah. You came in. And our leadership was good. The Marines were good. And you didn't back down. You kept on. You going. didn't back down. I mean, normally you go, you go on these training exercises and. <laughs> Some guys don't dig their fighting holes perfectly or whatever, and you have to correct guy. I tell you what, when when it's the real deal, man, everybody they know what to do. Everybody's do. You don't have to tell them. You stop long enough, guys are digging textbook fighting holes. And, <laughs> a little bit you know, more, a little bit more, ready to go. It's a lot easier. So in a lot of ways, you know, going I went three tours in Iraq, and um, that kind of stuff's easy. 
You know, right. like being in Iraq is a lot. Because they, they know what to do and they yeah. know they mean it's life or death. Right. And all the decisions are practical. That's right. You're not dealing with paperwork and <laughs> it's, it's all practical. So, yeah. so that was big. I, I, I got to go to some, I was very fortunate in my career that I, I was able to go to a lot of schools, mm -hmm. a lot of training. Um, How much time does you usually take out of your active time if you have to go to schools? Yeah, the pattern, you know, is typically right. sometimes when you're on in, in a, so in the Marine Corps, Again, we used to say you're in a fleet unit, fleet marine force unit, or a mm -hmm. combat unit, mm -hmm. and then you usually do three years there, and then you'll be in a, um, you know, maybe on a um, in a B billet we we would call it. So recruiting duty, uh, barracks duty, security yeah. guard duty. Uh, there, there's a number of duties you could do uh, uh, like that. So the pattern would be maybe you get to go to a, a combat oriented school when you're in the fleet, go away for a few months, come back. And then when you're on in your B billet, you typically get to go to schools. Then there are professional schools. So there's a school before you uh, as a captain uh, to prepare you to be a company commander. And then there's a school, um, there's a command and staff uh, course that you do. Every branch of service has this um, that you would do before you became a uh, field grade officer, a major, uh, to, to prepare to be a staff officer. And then there's a commander's course before you get to be uh, you know, a battalion commander. And then there's War College, and so there's these groups. And I, I got to go to some extracurricular schools. I went to the Mortar School. The U.S. Army has fantastic schools, by the way. And so I went to the Mortar course at, at Fort Benning. Great course. Really enjoyed it. Got to go back and be a Mortar platoon commander in, a, in my, my infantry battalion. It was fantastic. And then um, got to go to Ranger School. Uh, very unusual for Marines to go to Ranger School. Got to go to Airborne School after that. So. Had always that, wondered. Was that conducted by the Air Force? That, no, it's all the Army. All, yeah, Army. all at Fort Benning. All, I, all of it. Yeah, and then I went to my advanced uh, uh, infantry course, or my captain's level course, back at Fort Benning. And I told my wife, I said, well, she's bought a house at Fort Benning. You know? so, yeah, how's your, how's your wife dealing with all of this by the time? Yeah, you, good. How did the kids come along? Uh, so we didn't kids, have, have kids until... Kids well, I, when I went to Desert Storm, no kids. And then she was pregnant with our, first, our oldest daughter when I went to Ranger School. And yeah, How many years had you been married by that time? Oh, yeah, uh, five or six, uh, six. About five, yeah, or so. I got to, we were married in, in um, uh, now I'm under pressure, right, to cough up. Does she have a career? Does she have a career as well? And she did. She, when we went to Hawaii, uh, she, she worked for a while. And then um, uh, when we got to our, our second, our, my first B billet, if you will, after after my infantry battalion duties in Hawaii, was to go to Sasebo, Japan, and uh, be on you know, barracks duty. So I ended, I was the the executive officer there and ended up being the OIC. What was your rank? What was your rank? I started as uh, first lieutenant, pinned on captain, and became the OIC of that detachment. That detachment's gone, but we used to have a detachment in Sasebo. So she didn't work there. She actually she did. She taught taught English to uh, so, uh, a corporate CEO and some other folks. This is the this is the early nineties, mm -hmm. and our first daughter was born in in Sasebo. So. How many people in a detachment? Uh, it, it it can vary. Very we had people. about almost ninety Marines. Ninety Marines. Yeah, yeah. And we had we there are two uh, very large ordnance areas that are still there bunkers that actually uh, used to be Imperial uh, Japanese Navy bunkers. And uh, we, we do share some of that with the Japanese even mm -hmm. still. But uh, and Sasebo, Sasebo is, a, um, is, a, is a combined base. Mm -hmm. uh, but we would guard those facilities and act as a kind of a quick reaction force for the, for the base. And, 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 and so those, that detachment's gone. But 
Um, it was great. Three years there, I, I studied kendo, got a would you my shodan. This, you this was 93 to 96. 1996. Yeah, oh, got my shodan in kendo, which I no longer do. Just you go back to the States and there's no one to, no one no to practice kendo. No kendo yeah, so. But right. I still have all the kit. And, um, yeah, so that was good. And then after that, I went to uh, the Army's advanced course in Fort Benning. And then to be a company commander, did uh, Mediterranean float with uh, Marine Expeditionary Unit. Couple of NEO operations. What are NEO operations? Uh, Non-combatant evacuation operations. So okay. typically, what happens is the politics in a country, the situation, security situation turns to crap, and yeah. you got to get everybody out. Right. Gotcha. Yeah, and so you you send in. Uh, you mean all the, all the people in the embassy have to? Get the out. embassy. And well, also, that's also so what we train for is that you know you're going to fly into the embassy, right? And all these Americans, uh, John Smith, John and. And Melissa Smith from right. Portland, Oregon, are going to show up with their passport. I say it's anything but that. You land, you find a secure landing zone, you land, and you know usually when these things happen, people are given quite some, quite a bit of notice, quite a bit of time to get out on commercial aviation. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, and we tell, and the State Department tells people, get out, you know, right. get out of the country. A lot of people don't. There's always a few. Yeah, right. always a few. But you land. And of course, and every, I mean, more people out there have American passports than you can possibly believe. <laughs> it shouldn't have them or whatever. It's, yeah, you just wonder how. And then, yeah. and then, you know, the all of the other nationalities that didn't get out start lining up. You know, the French, the Germans, Egyptians, ooh, everybody, yeah. the Germans, the Irish. And what are you going to do? You know, you're not going to, you're not going to turn these people away. You don't? No, no. You, you, you know, you, you, this is bad. Sure. These are bad situation there. This is, uh, this is, a, there had been a coup. There was uh, so mean, so they can get on our aircraft. Yeah, or? so we would prioritize Americans, but frankly, we so we have clearing stations, and you go through and check documents and all okay. that stuff. And frankly, at some point in time, you're, you want you want to get off the beach, get off the landing zone, because it wasn't exactly a secure situation. The the the, the our potential opponents had a uh, a Russian Hind D helicopter, which is an attack helicopter. They had um, they killed most of their officers. And, and uh, taking the place over, and it was just a huge rabble, and they were going around shooting things and at random, and so you wanted to get out of there. So you pile everybody, and then you typically go to a third site, a third country. In this case, we sailed up the coast. Where did we go? Conakry, which is Guinea, and uh, which is right next door, and you offload those folks to a more uh, uh, secure and, and thorough admin processing. Mm-hmm. And we, so we had to do three different evacuations. We did an evacuation, waited a day. State Department calls up and says, no, you got to go back in. There's like more people left behind. <clears throat> back in, and then things really got bad. And then we had to go in and do it off the beach. At first, we did it from a hotel that had helipads and a, and a compound. Then we had to go in and secure a big stretch of beach and do it on a beach. And uh, it was really bad. And that's when all humanity sort of broke loose. And I remember some of my Marines saying, hey, I think we've evacuated those guys before. You know, you take them to Conakry, they'd slip back in for whatever. Some of these were fighters, you know, these were, we call them, you know, military-age males. And for whatever reason, they needed to recycle or get out again. And they'd take their uniforms off and put on civilian clothes. And they had the right credentials. And you take them on the boat, you know, on the ship, and you, you know, get them up. interesting. Yeah. You get to see a lot of things, you know. Yeah. But uh, some... Mostly peaceful, mostly uh, you know, non-eventful. Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple of sad situations. I remember the French embassy. I think it might have been the ambassador and his wife, or the, or the, the first political officer, where we came in, and, and they had uh, they had a little poodle, and we can't take animals. 
You know, and you have to tell these people, hey, we can't take the family dog, you know, things like that. But we're very fortunate. Nobody got killed. Wow. Nobody got out. Tell me we something. didn't take the Chinese. Oh. You wouldn't take the... You yeah, wouldn't? No, the, the uh, Mu commander was like, I'm not putting communist Chinese on a U.S. warship. That's well, not happening. Well, how could you tell? So, well, because they had passports. <laughs> okay, 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 okay. So we turned them away. We took everyone else. Right. What are some of the best moments while you were in the service? Yeah, the best moment's always when you come home. <laughs> yeah, because uh, see your wife again, see your family again. Those are the best moments. What's the longest time you ever had to stay away from your wife? I think in one stretch, my first tour in Iraq as an advisor, we were there for eight months, I think. Oh, wait, uh, Desert Storm might have been longer. I can't remember. One of those two. But Iraq certainly was a little more sporting at the time. This was 2004, mm -hmm. four over five. So... During that time frame, we did uh, Fallujah, Fallujah Part Two. There's a sort of a Part One, and things kind of went to went to heck. And we did Fallujah Part Two, and uh, and then Mosul, mm -hmm. and uh, we were fighting in Mosul. And uh, I was again, I was advisor. The Iraqis were doing most of the fighting, but um, that lasted quite a while. And then so uh, about eight months later, we came back. We were in Okinawa at the time, so came back home. And, so you, you retired. A lieutenant colonel? Or a colonel. Yeah. A full bird colonel. Okay. I actually came up. So two other experiences probably okay. pertinent to the, I, I went to the Japanese Command and Staff College, Japanese Ground Self Defense Force Command. That was the first Marine to do that. So that was how very did, How did that happen? I was in, I, I applied to be a foreign area officer. And in the Marine Corps, you keep your original military occupational specialty. And, and being a foreign area officer is kind of a secondary specialty. So they send you to Naval Postgraduate School where you get a master's degree. In this case, it was uh, National Security Affairs with an East Asia, you know, concentration and, uh, and then language school, uh, according to what the, 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 the language or country you've chosen. So Northeast Asia, foreign area officer, but a, a Japan concentration. So um, I was talking to a, a mentor of mine and he had been the first Marine to go to the uh, Republic of Korea uh, Naval Command Staff College. And he said, hey, you ought to be the first guy to go to the Japanese command. I was the first Japan FAO in the Marine Corps. And I said, so I just, What's a FAO? Uh, foreign Area Officer, FAO, Foreign Area Officer, FAO, yeah. Okay. Every service has a FAO program. They're okay. all run slightly differently. Okay. And, uh, but, so I, I, I applied and talked to a lot of people. Never been done before. Japan is typically not a country that does things it hasn't done before. And so, but they wanted, the Army had been doing this, uh, and they really wanted a Marine to go there. Mm -hmm. And so when I showed up and said I want to do it, they, they were very accommodating. After so. you, have there been mm -hmm. other Marines doing it? Yes, and after that, so now they I've continue. lost track, actually. Okay, uh, so they continued after you. Yeah, I did my last, uh, my last five years in the Marine Corps as a colonel. I was uh, in, um, left the Pacific Command in Hawaii, eight years in Hawaii, or five years in Hawaii, sorry, after my battalion command, and then came to Japan, and I was in the Ministry of Defense for five years mm -hmm. uh, here in Tokyo to, to try to assist, Japan, assist and advise Japan in uh, building an amphibious capability. So right, right. Uh, during that time, I was able to help coordinate extra slots for Marines to go to command staff college. Yeah. Okay, and the next thing? The yeah, then went to, I went to War College after that with what the Japanese called NIDS, National Institute for Defense Studies, that they moved that from Meguro to uh, oh, Ichigaya. Right. Yeah, because yeah, that's by my home as well. Yeah, so that was, that, was, that was great. And we've been doing that for a while. We, Marine Corps alternates with the Navy. It was a great experience. And then, yeah, I got out in, uh, 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 well, let me back up. Was a battalion commander. Took a battalion to Iraq. Uh, we were the last active duty infantry battalion in Iraq. Very quiet. It had what not year, been what quiet. What year was that? What year was uh, that? That would have been 
oh nine. Okay. Yeah, and had not been quiet. And then when we got there, uh, you know, the, the pacification program and all the programs we were putting into place were having an effect, and actually was pretty quiet. And very few of our guys got shot at, and, and it was it was it was much more peaceful tour than I had um, uh, anticipated, and or any of us had anticipated. And so, uh, our one claim to fame is we. Um, during the Gulf War, uh, there was uh, the first guy shot down, uh, a U.S. Navy pilot named Scott Spiker, and uh, in, in the desert, we actually found his aircraft. Uh, we, we, the U- we knew where the aircraft was. A lot of people had found it. They had sent teams in there to pull sensitive equipment off of it, but no one had found him. And right. so uh, we mounted up a, 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 an operation, if you will, with a lot of heavy equipment, sifting equipment, bulldozers, backhoes, all of this stuff, and just started this big desert sweeping camp. And I had a company commander. I'd say I did. I, a company commander. Was of mine he a Marine? Did. Yeah, yeah. Oh, he was a Navy pilot. He was a Navy pilot. Okay. But we went out there. Uh, towards the end, as this thing is winding down in Iraq, and they were getting ready to pull more combat units out, uh, there became this uh, feeding frenzy, if you will, to, to hey, we got to find everybody that we haven't found. Okay. And so we started to participate. So you already presumed he's, presumed he's dead. Yeah, we presumed he's dead. There had been sightings. There had been anecdotal uh, sightings by people um, uh, that said, hey, I'd seen his initials carved in a doorway here where we thought he'd been kept prisoner for a while. Uh, uh, over the years, people had brought in uh, bones out of the desert and said, well, these could be him, and you know, it turned out to be sheep bones or okay, okay. goats or whatever, And, and which is a friend of mine worked for... Um, the recovery uh, command in Hawaii, and so that's a very common thing. Whenever you're soliciting remains, what you typically get are a lot of people looking for money, and so the. But they get paid for doing this. Well, we don't do that. As, as a matter of policy, we don't. But people don't know that, and right. so they'll 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 they want some kind of reward, and they'll typically bring you animal bones, right? Mm-hmm. And so uh, so we mounted up this effort in the desert and uh, scraped a lot of desert. My my, my company commander and that company reinforced it and. I uh, had a bro- so I just love this story. I, I wish we could write a book about it someday because uh, the airplane was we'd been out there for a while. There was some bad weather coming in. We couldn't find anything from this guy. No remains whatsoever. And they'd work all night and sleep during the day because it was just so hot. And I've got pictures somewhere, and it looked like the, it looked like the surface of Mars. It really did. Nothing in sight that, that would remind you that you were on planet Earth, and 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 really hot. And they these guys would sit around at night smoking cigars. And talking, you know, trying to strategize. What do we do next? How, you know, why can't we find this guy? What, you know, how, what's the grid pattern that we should be doing? This? And my, I had a brilliant air officer, Marine Corps captain, F-18 pilot. So he knew this was an F-18 that Scott Spiker had flown. He knew a lot about the F-18s. He had ejected from an aircraft at one point in time. Something happened to the aircraft. He ejected. So that was a key part of the puzzle. Is that when the Scott Spiker's aircraft hit? He uh, had had a sympathetic uh, ejection, and so he'd actually lost his arm. He was dead by this time, we figure, or, or died in the impact. What's a sympathetic ejection? Uh, for some reason, you know, the, the aircraft hit. And then he's ejected? And then, you know, it, that triggered the, the ejection system somehow, and, the, and, and he ejected upon Wouldn't impact. Wouldn't that be too late? Yeah, well, the, yeah, he did. <laughs> so, we, so because of that, we figured he was either knocked out in the air or, or he was dead okay. already. So... Uh, if he hits the ground, he had not ejected, and something was wrong. Right? Mm. And so, in the course of that, we know he had lost an arm because that had been found by a, be- a, a Bedouin years before that. His arm had been found. His arm had been found, but no, no sign of him. And so, my air officer figured it out. He said they, they watched the wind patterns over several days, and uh, 
my air officer just did the math and he said, hey, if he had a sympathetic ejection, uh, ejection here, that would have carried, he would have, he would have gone to a certain altitude, the wind speed is estimated at this, he would have drifted so long, it takes this long to come down, you know, here's a goose egg a couple kilometers away, he's got to be here. You know, if, he, if he's anywhere, he's in that goose egg. So they pick up this, well, they had like 48 hours left or something like this. They pick up this whole lash up and they start marching this direction. You just like, like you know, Moses through the right. Sinai Desert, you know. And, and they've got Marines out in front screening and looking for things and pretty soon Marines start coming back and going, hey, found this stainless steel ring. It's not part of the desert, right? And my air officer would say, uh, that's a piece of the connecting hose that did whatever. All these pieces, so the debris field started to increase. They got there, long story short, they scraped, they find his skull. Oh, wow. and, and, and we had his, his uh, dental records on site and we were able to, you know. How long had it been? How long had oh, it been? Oh, wow. There? So that was 2009, right? And so Desert Storm was, gosh, what was that, 91? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a long it time. Was it 91? Yeah, 91. It was 91. Yeah. You're right. You're right. I remember that. So a long time. Wow. And they found it. And they, these guys did a great job. And I think there was a couple of interviews and the commandant came out. It was a big deal. Yeah. They didn't have a proper burial, all of that. Yeah, I returned the remains and then the Navy, you know. So it was, uh, that was our one big claim to fame. And I, I say ours, but really there was a, a particular company, one of our companies did this and, and did a great job. And uh, and then I go, I come here eventually, go to Pacific Command. I was the uh, Southeast Asian Division Chief. Uh, and then I became the Chief of War Plans there for two years of my life. I'll never get back. And that's really, it's very hard work. And then uh, I come here. Um, and uh, to do essentially advisor duty, we didn't call it that, but that's really what we were trying to, and that's what the Japanese wanted was, hey, help us put this thing called an amphibious capability together. Had been started by another guy, uh, Grant Newsham, who is a, a prolific writer, national security writer, great, great guy and a good friend. He started the, the position. I picked it up from him. And um, yeah, so midway, so 2016, I get a call and my my boss says, hey, I need you to go to Iraq for six months. So I went back to Iraq in 2016 as uh, on a staff in Baghdad, and that was during the ISIS um, fight. And that was, uh, that, was the, that was the worst tour of duty, the most difficult tour of duty that I've ever had to Why? do. Yeah. Just, I mean, it's, I, I tell people, you know, jokingly, it's way easier to get shot at than it is to be uh, uh, seven days a week you know, waking up at, at 4.35 in the morning as the, I was the operations officer. I was the okay. CJ3, the Combined Joint uh, uh, Operations Officer for mm -hmm. the whole country of Iraq. So we had drawn all this infrastructure down and all these units down, and then the ISIS thing hits, and we quickly send, you know, a headquarters organization back in. And, but it's much smaller now, and so it, it's got the whole country of Iraq to worry about with a with senior command in Kuwait, a three-star. So... It was it was six months of you know day on stay on so and then and then you know you broken sleep you'd have to get up in the middle of the night to approve strikes and myself the lawyer the intel guy the, the commanding general and sounds to me like you 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 had a bad case of having to deal with a lot of people yeah yeah <laughs> and, a lot. And, and, and a lot of different yeah. attitudes and, and 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 thoughts about what, how it should be done yeah and most of my officers i had 90 officers and most of them were not americans so they were mostly nato mm -hmm. countries great guys uh, my deputy was a british officer um, a lot of brits uh dutch marine had 
British Royal Marines, I had Australians, fantastic guys. Uh, it shows the power of a, of a formal alliance like that where guys are trained to the same doctrine. And I, I came back and tried to impart some of these lessons on, on, the, on the Japanese. In fact, I say right now, the self-defense forces should, should just adopt NATO doctrine. You know, that gives them um, trying, to, trying to be interoperable with the United States, and we are interoperable to yeah, a certain extent, but there are a lot of incongruities there. Mm -hmm. And it, it's like trying to take a, uh, you've been to the UK and seen their plugs, right? Big three prongs. Yeah, take, take that to America and try to stick it in it. It just doesn't always work, right? And so culturally and doctrinally, uh, we have those issues because the Japanese have their own doctrine, mm -hmm. and it's not, and generally speaking, it's not even close to American, and which is NATO doctrine. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we have trouble with that sometimes. Tell me this, okay, so where you are now, you're retired. What's life been like for you since you've gotten out of the service? Now you're with Raytheon. Yeah, I'm with a company called Raytheon, and um, this is on my own. I have to make the disclaimer statement That's that right, I'm doing this on my own own time and own volition and not on as a representative of Raytheon. But we're for Raytheon. Uh, retired in, in 18. Uh, the goal was to keep our youngest daughter in high school, last last kid in high school. So we started a consulting company uh, to stay here. You can't just stay in Japan. You don't have to have a status. So I started a consulting company, had two wonderful clients, uh, Snap-on Tools and Mitsubishi Heavy Industries, who... You did this alone by yourself? Yeah, my wife and I. Okay. Uh, yeah, I was the CEO. All right. Uh, and and I, I used to jokingly say, you know, meetings are short and everyone generally agrees. And so it was fantastic, you know. <laughs> the board was very small. There you go. Uh, and we did that... For and, how long? Uh, for about five months. And we were, you know, we were paying the rent, paying the electric bill, but that was about it. And uh, I had been, I uh, started interviewing with Raytheon and then was, was uh, blessedly accepted. And I tell people, hey, you know, founding your own company when you're in your mid-50s, it sounds really sexy. And I wanted to do it. I wanted it to prove that I could do it. But it's hard if you've been working. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very difficult. Yeah, I, 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 I remind myself of the guy in The Matrix, the first movie, who they, <laughs> they take him out and he has that... He goes back in and has that meeting and says, hey, put me back in. Put me, put me back in the matrix. Put me back in, but this is the condition. Yeah, right. Right. Eating a steak. I know this is a real steak. I know this is a real steak, but, but put, put me, me back, back in. in. Right. So I got grafted back into the matrix and uh, happy as, happy happy as you can be. Yeah. Head <laughs> on everything. Wow. Yeah. Okay, now I'd like to end the podcast by asking this question. What do you consider a good life in Japan to be? You've only been in Japan. You've been in Japan for a while. Uh, quite a while. Yeah, yeah off and on. The math added up about 20 years, and so most of that military time, obviously. Uh, I think, to be, to be brutally honest, the best status in Japan is to be an expat with an expat package in Japan, uh, because uh, you know you're you're uh, you or or a sofa status guy with getting you know cost of living allowance and, and all this other stuff, because you have access to a whole different line of supply chain, you know, personal family supply chain, uh, things that you need, want, whatever, right? Uh, somebody else is paying for your house. Um, you know, you're, you know, the, 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 the greatest thing that money does for you is buys options and freedom, right? Money is, uh, money is not happiness, but it provides options. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, I mean, you're, uh, Japan is a very convenient place to live. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, the best status, I think, from an American point of view, is to be here as an expat. Because you're kind of doing your own thing, right? You're not subject to the, 
not subject to everything that. Uh, if anything happens, we can get taken out. Yeah, you can leave. You know, there's, a, real quick. there's an exit door, right? So, right. Chris, I want to thank you for this. Yeah, story. thank you very much. It's been fantastic. enjoyed it very much. I think it was fantastic. I want to thank all of you that are watching this podcast. Make sure you press like and subscribe. And remember, it's all unknown, so continue to reach for the stars because you're too blessed to be stressed. Thank you.